Anoop, it's great to be here with you today. Thank you so much for having me. It's uh, really good to be to be doing this. Well, um, you know, I've been wanting to talk to you about, I feel like you're in a really interesting position because you're not only in an academic institution at Harvard as a postdoctoral fellow, I believe, but, um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you're also um, on the front lines of actually implementing sanitation in a um, in a very complex setting, and so I'd like for you to tell us about your organization and what it aims to achieve. Yeah, yeah. So thank you, thank you for laying that out. Yes. So I'm uh, currently a postdoc at Harvard. That's one of the hats that I wear. Um, uh, and and you know I was at I got my DRPH at Berkeley uh, prior to that, and and my focus has always been on sanitation and, and part of that is because I, uh, I started an organization about eight or nine years ago um, that aims to um, uh, deliver high quality sanitation services um, throughout rural India. So for a little bit of context and background, um, the, the World Health Organization's joint monitoring program estimates that there's about 350 million people in India uh, who are defecating in the open every single day. And so the definition of that is you are either going out behind, you know, some bushes or out on the side of the road, out in the fields. It's basically just, um, you know, the, the, the title is pretty self-explanatory, open defecation. And um, people are doing this or they're, they're sort of engaging in this behavior because they don't have access to a toilet. And so, you know, if we look at what are the root causes of not having a toilet, there's, there's, there's several, there's several of these, what, you know, what we call social determinants of access to sanitation. And, and some of them are, you know, fairly self-explanatory. So poverty, right? So people um, in, in large parts of India cannot afford to build a toilet for themselves. So that's, that's one thing. Uh, but then another sort of consequence of poverty that we find is that people don't have enough space. So the average uh, rural family where my organization works, or one of the areas where we work, they only own 360 square feet of land. So that, that's smaller than a 20 by 20 foot room, right? Um, and that's shared on average by about five people. So the, the government's recommended toilet technology is 67 square feet. And so all of a sudden, it's about 18 to 19% of someone's land would be taken up by a toilet. So they, they, they physically do not have the space. And you can imagine that's in rural India and in urban India in informal um, um, settlements, uh, you know, which are extremely dense. Uh, there's even less space. So, so those are some of the, the social determinants of, of why people do not have a, a toilet and thus uh, defecate in the open. And so what my organization does is we, we, we're sort of designed to address some of those issues. So what we do is we build these community sanitation facilities in rural India. So these are uh, large you know, toilet blocks um, uh, typically have about eight toilets for men, eight toilets for women, um, and they're built on land that's donated to us by the government. And um, they're free to use by the public. Um, and what we do is all the waste is stored in a biogas tank, which is this big underground tank um, where it decomposes to form methane gas. And we use that gas to generate electricity, and then the electricity is used to power a water filtration plant that filters 
raw groundwater. And we then sell that groundwater, uh, or filtered groundwater, I should say, to the community for a very nominal fee. And then we use that revenue to sustain our, our work. Um, and so that's kind of the model in a nutshell. You know, what we found is that maintenance and, and uh, you know, you have to keep the toilets maintained. No one's going to use it if it's if it's not maintained, if it's not clean, if it you know if it's dirty, etc. Um, and so that's a big part of our focus. Um, uh, so yeah, so that's kind of the organization in a nutshell. Um, you know, I'm very I'm I'm very agnostic towards the technology we use in India. I, I don't think India's sanitation crisis is because we don't have the right technology. I firmly believe it's because we don't have the systems in place to um, uh, to, to deliver high quality and suitable sanitation solutions to the people who need them most. And so, uh, you know, if in 10 years our organization is building private household latrines because that's what people want or that's what the need is, then, then, then we'd be happy to do that. The point is that we exist you know, A, first and foremost to serve the needs of the community and, and B, we want to do that by addressing the root causes of, of the issue that they face. That's excellent. Um, so now I want to ask you a little bit about some things that are happening on the ground with your organization that you're excited about. And I'll probably get to some challenges next, but let's start with some of the things you're really excited about. Yeah, I mean, Obviously, this past year has been tough. You know, it's been it's been really hard with COVID. You know, last year was the first year that I was not in India since 2010. I've, I've been going back at least two or three times every year since 2010 when I really started this work. Um, and so it was really hard to, to be away from the community. And yet what COVID, what we're seeing around the world is... COVID, um, it, it pulled back the rug on on so many of these deep societal issues, whether it's in public health, whether it's in, um, you know, social justice, whatever it might be. And, and, and that's no different with sanitation. And given the emphasis, this renewed emphasis we see on hand washing, the renewed emphasis we see on hygiene as a result of COVID, it really, um, whether it was the government or whether it's our funders, they really, um, they have a renewed sense of urgency around our work. And so, so there's a lot of buy-in. Um, you know, we, we recently finished piloting our solution. So we have eight of these facilities in two different states. Um, we're serving close to 6,000 people a day, selling about 100,000 liters of safe drinking water a month. Um, and we've learned a ton. And, and, and so, what our funders and what our board and what our other government stakeholders are telling us is that we need to now sort of aggregate our learnings from the past few years and, and sort of develop a, a, a solution, a district level solution. So there's 718 districts in India um, and some of them are obviously they range in size, but the ones that we work in or where we work tend to have two to three, maybe 4 million people. And so these are, big districts within a state and, and what the government wants now, what our stakeholders want is a plan that can be implemented at the district level. So, you know, and what that looks like is, okay, can we go to a district and say, 
you know, we're looking for the funds to construct maybe 30 or 40 or 50 of these facilities. And what we will do as an organization then is ensure that they're maintained, ensure that they're they're sustained. Um, And what we'll also make sure is that we're collecting high quality data um, so that we can track our impact over time and, and sort of demonstrate over time that that these facilities and this infrastructure is is making a difference in people's lives and in the communities and so you know i, th- I think that's the thing that I'm, I'm i'm really excited about because for the last eight years or so we have been thinking about this um facility by facility okay let, let's we got to build another one to, to, to prove the concept you know to test things out and and i think we're finally at a stage where um, we can think bigger, you know, there was a time when, when building one facility was, was, we couldn't think bigger than that. That was the biggest thing we could think of. And, and now we're being challenged to think, okay, let, let, how do we take this to, to a district level, right? How do we get the government engaged? And, and what's really exciting is that the government is very much behind us and with us on this. And, and, um, and so, so we have to sort of, um, uh, you know, take advantage of that support and, and sort of um, while, while it's there. Wow. So you are becoming the franchising McDonald's of, of sanitation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> Sorry, that was a bad metaphor or example. Um, I'm curious now if you could tell us about some of the challenges you've experienced and maybe just focus on some that have really stood out to you. If it is COVID, that's fine. But if there's others you want to talk about, great. Yeah, you know, um, I don't I mean, how how much time do you have? I think uh, in terms of challenges, you know, um. There's so many. I mean, it's so I'll go with the one the, the one that came to my mind the first, right? I think that it, it's indicative that it came to to my mind first. It, it, it's you know when when you talk about the poor, the poor are not a monolith. Um, it is not one thing that is equal in its makeup, um, right? And in India, for example, you can go to a poor. Where we started working is a state called Bihar, and Bihar has, as per the 2011 census, at least 104 million people, um, you know, 80 to 90 million of whom live in rural areas, and probably 60 to 70 million who don't have a toilet. Um, Very rural agrarian society, um, and and, and Bihar is by far the poorest state in India, Um, and you know, when I started working there, I didn't understand, you know, in social epidemiology, we talk about this idea of um, intersectionality, right? So uh, people people embody different identities simultaneously. So, for example, I identify as a, as a cis man, but I also identify as a cis brown man, um, you know, as, as, as just an example. Um and, and the same is, I don't know why we would not stop to think that the same would be true in in poor communities or in, in poor settings. And, and maybe we do, and maybe we just did it, we didn't do a good job of it early on. But, you know, 
when we talk about poor communities in Bihar, we're talking about it, it's different if you're a woman versus a man, right? It, it's different if you are a low caste or, um, uh, you know, a, a, a marginalized caste versus a historically not marginalized caste. Um, those are all issues that, that you have to really reconcile with. And so, you know, the example that I'm thinking of is we were building our fourth facility in Bihar. This was in 2016. It was February 2016. And um, we were we were building this facility on government land that uh, was supposed to serve um, this community uh, of Dalits. And Dalits are the, you know, they, they are part of, they are the lowest caste group in India. Um, they, the so-called untouchables um, in India. And, 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 and no one in this community had a house, uh, a toilet in their household, or, or maybe very few. And what's interesting is that, you know, maybe a hundred meters up the road was a, a high caste community. So, so imagine you have this, this community of Dalits living sort of kind of in this wooded area next to this clearing of government land. And 100 meters up the road, you have this high caste uh, segment of the village living, you know, on the other side of the road, but 100 meters up. And incidentally, where we were building our toilet block was um, next to this field where the high caste family boys would come and play soccer every day. And so we're building this facility and... uh, we, we started hearing rumblings from some of our um, uh, construction managers and, and, and construction workers that they were getting they were getting threatened by these boys that that they that you know the boys are coming in saying you're not allowed to build this facility here and so you know I was like what I don't understand what's going on so one day I went and I, I sort of checked it out and these boys were irate I mean it's so fascinating because they come from high caste families and and so there is this obvious difference in wealth between them and and the community that we were serving and yet if you think about what what does that actually mean in the context of all of india right so the, even though they're high caste in a village they are still they, they still would be extremely poor in um in a city in in say delhi or mumbai right and their argument to us was this is you're building this facility on this field and this is the only place where we have um for recreation and um and my retort to that was like okay i'm sorry but you know a safe place to to defecate and and use the toilet is is more important than than where where you young guys play soccer And, and i was very blunt about it and, and they were furious with me. And, you know, I, I sort of, I went into this long thing about these are Dalits, they don't have jobs, blah, 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 blah. And, and they were like, what about our jobs? Don't you understand that all of us are unemployed? Don't you understand that we are, you know, we might be high caste, but we're also poor? And it was so illuminating, this, this idea that, um, it, it was really one of the first times um, I mean, they threatened, they, they, these guys were literally threatening to, they were threatening to kill my, 
my um, uh, laborers. They were threatening to burn our facility down. We had to get the government and the police involved at one point. Um, but it was it was. So on the one hand, it was revealing in the sense that, like, um, uh, you, you know, you can't the, the poor are not a monolith and, and that there's different degrees of of what it means to be poor. Um, and, and that's like a really important nuanced point. And yet, because it's not a monolith and because there are different sort of um, strata of being poor, someone still does have hierarchy over someone else. And, and so when these guys threatened to beat us and, and kill us and burn our facility down, they were trying to exert their power over us. And, and, and so all of these dynamics, when they play out, it, you know, you, you kind of grow up and, you, and you're taught like, okay, if you're helping people and if your intentions are good, then, then that's what you need. Right. And, and, you know, uh, you know, there's that famous phrase that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And, and it was, it was kind of a reminder of that to me and just how difficult it is to navigate the local dynamics in, in these, in, in communities. And, and it doesn't matter whether that's in India, you could, you could be in the U S and, and that's, it, 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 it's something that you're going to be confronted with. And, and so it, it's just this reminder that your good intentions are never good enough. Um, so, yeah. Wow. I mean, it makes me think a little bit about how, you know, we set up a system here where it feels like, you know, you have property taxes that I might cut this out of our, our little talk here, but, you know, we have these property taxes that pay for our school systems. And so therefore you have wealthy people that want their kids in the best school system. And so there's just this aggregation of wealthy in one, you know, in one school district, poor in another, then there's no funding for that other school district. And you think these people are trying to protect their children. Like, I want my children to get the best education. And by doing that, by just saying, I'm striving for my child to do better, you're actually creating a worse situation for other children. And mm-hmm. But people are so protective of their own that they're not, yeah. they're not going to do what they need to to step out of that. Yeah, it, it's really hard to abstract to the common good when when especially during something like covid right i mean um when when everyone is at risk right and um yeah it's it's really hard for a lot of people to think about the common good well i'm going to probably cut the part out where i was speaking about something unrelated but um so now i'm going to go to question four um so I'm curious, you know, you're now affiliated with Harvard, and I'm curious to hear how you combine academic work um, that is often unrelated, I think, oftentimes to the real world, and you combine that with the real world stuff that you deal with with your organization. And I'm and I would love to hear some of the frustrations of that, or maybe there's some, you know, it's actually a great combination for you. Yeah, you know, that, I, I really appreciate that question. Um, I, so I'll, I'll preface all of this by saying I've been extremely lucky in my career because um, I, I never wanted 
to do one without the other. I never wanted to be a practitioner without the research skills, and I never wanted to be a researcher without the practice. I, I can't imagine my life where, where I'm only doing one. And I've been very fortunate to have these opportunities where I can actually be simultaneously working on both crafts. Now, what I will say is there will become, there will come times where you, you are disproportionately focusing on one over the other. I think when I was doing my DRPH, for example, there were, I found a way to make it work, but there were definitely times where, you know, I was disproportionately focused on, um, I would say during the count the school year, right? So September to May, I was very focused on, 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 on my academic obligations. Um, and, and there were, there were, uh, every year I would carve out maybe two to three weeks between September and May where I would go to India, um, to check up on things with the organization. And certainly, um, you know, talk and constant communication with my co-directors there during that time, you know, so, so I still had, you know, a partial foot in that world. Um, and, and then the summers would be completely dedicated to, to my organization working in India, being there. And, and so you, you have to kind of find ways to make it work, right? On, on, a, on, a, on any given day, it's not like, you know, I'm spending exactly 50% of my time doing one and, and the other 50% doing the other. It, you know, there's ebbs and flows and, and you, you kind of have to be okay with that. Um, at, when I, when I finished my DRPH, I was very, um, I, I wanted to, my, my goal has always been to, to have my organization be uh, one where we, where we provide direct services, but we also do very high quality um, translational research, right? So, so research that is informing the delivery of our services. Um, those are two, the, 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 those are, I, I, that has always been my goal. And, and so, you know, obviously getting into RPH trained me in, 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 in the scientific method and, and actually what it means to do research and high quality research. And, and now at Harvard, I'm sort of refining those skills. Um, and, but, but what I love about being at Harvard is that I'm, I'm at the department, I'm at the medical school there and I'm at, um, I'm in the Department of Global Health and Social Medicine, and it's a, it's a department that's chaired by Dr. Paul Farmer, um, who is the, the co-founder of Partners in Health. And so there's this whole ethos within the department of um, uh, doing research that is translated into action. And so, so this, this, we constantly hear this phrase, a bias towards action. Right. So whatever we do, it has to be with a bias towards action, even if it's research. And so um, and that ethos permeates throughout the entire department. And so my mentor, my advisor at Harvard, um, Professor Matt Bonds, he also runs his own uh, nonprofit in Madagascar called Pivot. And Pivot provides um, uh, health services uh to, to indigent communities uh, throughout uh, Madagascar. And what he does is, is exactly kind of where he is, is kind of where I want to be in 10 years from now, right? So he, he, his organization provides these very high quality 
health services to women, children, infants, you know, men uh, in, in rural Madagascar. But they also have this um, this science wing. Uh, it's called Pivot Science, actually, where they where they're doing really high quality research. Um, the findings of which they're publishing in very high quality journals, but then, but then the point is, is that it's informing how they deliver services um, to, to the communities that they care the, the most about. And so, you know, I kind of alluded at the beginning of this call that I haven't been in India this, this year and it, and that's been really tough and it, and it has because you're away from your colleagues, you're away from the community you care so deeply about but, but it's given me this time to really build um, and start putting together the pieces of um, what I hope will be sort of our, uh, our research branch, right? Uh, the, the, the research arm of, of the organization where we, where we have postdocs and we have professors from, you know, institutions all over the world um, working with us and using our um, uh, using the fact that we we provide services and that access to um, to beneficiaries as a way to um, do research uh, with with those folks, whether it's qualitative, whether it's quantitative, but always with a bias towards action. Right? Not we 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 we're not collecting data just so that we can um, publish papers. We're, we're doing it so that there's a very direct line between what we find and then how we are delivering services or, or, or what the services are that we're delivering. And so, um, yeah, I, I think that, you know, the question about, you know, how I'm combining the academic work with, with the real world, I, I'm very lucky because I'm in a department at a, at a, at a medical school, at a university that, that, just really cares about that very deeply, and um, and and that's their whole sort of reason for being. And I've, <laughs> I'm very lucky that I've been able to weasel my way in. And uh, <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> that was so great to talk to you and to hear these really great uh, points and stories. Um, and thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So we'll host a discussion with you, hopefully with the students soon. But um, for now, you get to students, you get to listen to this podcast. So take care. Thank you.